Welcome to the Oklahoma Adventist Podcast. Every year in January, the Oklahoma Conference brings its pastors together at Wawoka Woods for a few days of rest and professional development. This year, our first speaker was Dr. Richard Davidson from Andrews Theological Seminary, and he presented a series of lectures entitled The Third Angel's Message in Verity. This series of presentations looked at the topic of justification by faith through the Old Testament to gain a greater understanding of how the third angel's message is righteousness by faith in verity, as we're told in the spirit of prophecy. We were incredibly blessed by this series of presentations, and we hope that you will be as well. This afternoon, we're going to divide this session into two so that uh, you can sneak out and get one more 10-minute feel of the sun before it goes down, maybe. So we're going we're gonna to take a session, a brief session on the Psalms, and then we'll take this next session on the prophets, okay? Justification by faith in the Psalms. Where would you go? What text might you think of? Psalm 32. Let, I'll take that one because that's the one I've got first. Yes. So Psalm 32. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And the, blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. And the word for impute here is the same word which we met in Genesis 15, 6. He reckoned it unto him for righteousness. Now he does not reckon. Instead, he does reckon. He reckons, he imputes, he does not impute iniquity to him. So we got the two sides of the righteous, of the imputation. Jesus takes our guilt and then he imputes to us his righteousness. Do you remember the background of Psalm 32? Yes, it's connected. Ellen White is clear on this, and I think the context is, is describing David's experience. And I'm not going to go through every verse, but his experience of his bones groaning all the day long, the sense of, of conscious guilt, and even his vitality dried up in the drought of summer. And then I acknowledge my sin, my iniquity I have not hidden. I will confess my transgressions, and you gave the iniquity of my sin. Now let's just meditate on David's situation. David had committed murder and adultery and I wrote an article in JATS where I argued that that adultery was not a consensual relationship. There is so much evidence in Samuel that David was walking around on the roof at the time of evening time, and he should have been out on the battlefield. The text says all Israel is out on the battlefield, and here's the king who's supposed to be out fighting the battles, who is just lounging around in the afternoon and happens just to be walking around on the top of the roof. And if you've been in Israel, 
And now they've actually got the place where David has his palace. We know where that is. It's been located. It's been reconstructed. You can stand on the palace and you can look right down to the city of Silwan. That's where all of his people live, down below. So some people say Bathsheba was out showing herself off. No, she was in her four-room, four-cornered house with a courtyard. David broke the fundamental rule of the Middle East. You don't walk on, you don't walk around on your roof at the time of bathing, which is at sunset. And especially in biblical times, sunset was when the time that you had fulfilled your you know, menstrual cycle, and then you took a bath to have a ritual purity. For sure you don't go. I learned that the hard way. I lived in East Jerusalem. I didn't go up on the roof, but I went up on a higher story of the building, and this Arab came running out and said, What are you doing up there? This is the wrong time of the day for anyone to be up looking around over our women. Oh, you know, thought he was going to do something dangerous, but I, was in, I was, didn't know what I was doing, but I didn't go there again at that time of day. So it's still real. So you can go through the story and you can see that David doesn't just say he was walking up there for a little walk. The Hebrew is he was strolling around with time on his hands in the wrong place at the wrong time, knowing he should not be there. And he looks down and he lusts. And then the language gets really interesting where he, he sins and takes her. It's, a, it's not a choice that she makes. And he defiles her. And then he sends her back home. Why does it say right in that period, right there in those verses, that she was just cleansing herself from her defilement. Because if she was just cleansing herself, then we know Uriah could not have gotten her pregnant. And Uriah comes back and doesn't ever go down to his house. Specifically, keeps saying down and go down because that's right, right below. So the story unfolds in so many ways, and I don't want to get into that now. But I am convinced that this was a case of what we call today power rape, where someone like a pastor or a teacher, someone who has some sort of power over a human being, does terrible things and takes advantage of that. And David did that, committed power rape. Now, here's the cool thing. Our commentary, our SDA commentary, says, oh, it was probably partly Bathsheba's fault. It doesn't read the narrative clues. The old, the commentaries on Samuel in the 19th century, they all blame Bathsheba. But you know what? There's one Old Testament commentary in the 19th century that doesn't blame Bathsheba. It's a little lady called Ellen White. Amen. And Ellen White, every time she says, David sin against Bathsheba. And she does not hold Bathsheba guilty. Just as Nathan, the prophet, after the sin, 
tells this parable, and who is Bathsheba in the parable? The innocent ewe lamb. And David is the one that is the one who does the stupid, the, 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 the violence. And David then gets angry and says, what have you done to this person? You are the man. The fingers pointed not at Bathsheba, but at David. So here is David, who then covers up his crime by having Uriah the Hittite killed. What's the penalty for adultery in the Bible? It's the death penalty. David knows he deserves to die. Is there any sacrifice in the Old Testament for an adulteress or an adulterer? That can you can just pay a sacrifice and it's okay? No, I'm thankful. God did not allow adultery and murder to go away by a sacrifice, an animal sacrifice that would cheapen marriage. It would cheapen life. So God says, Genesis 9, if you have, if someone has killed, then by man that person shall be killed. So the death penalty was instituted in the time of Israel. So David deserved to die. But he didn't die. God forgave him. Like Manasseh filled the city of Jerusalem with blood. Did someone pay? Jesus paid, that's right. But God also in the Old Testament put in something to try to show them that there would be a son of David who would pay. Because remember, his son died in childbirth. And David mourned and mourned until as he was thinking he was going to be dying. And when he dies, he doesn't mourn because he says, I realize God is, he sees it. He sees, he sees that his son died in his place and took the penalty for his adultery. Now, God's going to save that little child. and He's going to save David, too. And Jesus came to pay the ultimate penalty. But here we have, in the picture of David, we have God's trying to teach us. There's going to be a son of David that's going to die for all of us right there in the story. And so David has courage when Nathan tells him, your sin is forgiven. And so he prays this prayer. And he ends the prayer, Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. So a great text to teach. The Lord does not impute to us our iniquity. He rather imputes to us his righteousness. Powerful text of the gospel. But I'd like to take us to... This is a one psalm that deals with the story of David, but there's another one that we usually go to. Which one is that? Psalm 51. So let's go there for a few minutes. I could preach the next three hours on Psalm 51. It's one of my favorite psalms of all. I believe Psalm 51 has the entire picture of the plan of salvation. Maybe if you haven't preached on Psalm 51 recently, you need to go and look at it because it describes the entire picture of how someone comes and receives justification by faith, and then how justification moves to sanctification by faith, 
and how sanctification moves to restore joy that the, the person had lost of the assurance of salvation and, and all the rest. It's all there in this wonderful psalm. But teaches us other things too. So let's turn to Psalm 51. After the, Nathan the prophet went to him after he'd gone into Bathsheba. And the first three verses are David's prayers of repentance. He uses all the words for sin. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. He sees the whole range of sin and he says, Lord, that's all me. Please, please forgive me. And then he starts focusing in. And here's where we see some great truths about justification by faith. For he says, for I acknowledge my sin and my, my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against who? Against you. And you only have I sinned. We too often think of sin with what we do in regard to the person we have sinned against. But ultimately, it's directly against God. It's turning from him. It's rebelling from him. And so David says, Against you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. This psalm teaches that sin is very deadly. Sin is serious. And it calls for judgment. That's obvious. And it's basically sin directly against God. But notice how David gets a deeper understanding of sin. And along with the understanding of justification by faith, we got to have a deepened understanding of sin or we won't get justification by faith. I'm frankly convinced that our Baptist friends, they don't get the gospel partially because they don't take sin that seriously. They believe in once saved, always saved. So what, what difference does it make if I do this and this, I'm saved already. So they trivialize sin, among the other things where they distort it. David doesn't trivialize sin. This wake-up call, when he was drifting away from God, a wake-up call to come back and get justified again, he realizes the sin is his acts, iniquity, sin, transgression, he uses all the terms. And then he says, it's also my nature. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. He, was, he realizes he's born a sinner. And this goes with what Romans says. We are born in Romans 8. Uh, uh, People are born estranged from God. So he realizes sin is not just actions, not just his power rape, not just his murder, but it's his very being that is sinful. His very being. But he, he, know, he says it's even more than that. It's not only my actions, it's not only my nature. In the next verse, he goes on to say, Behold, you desire truth in the inward part and in the hidden part. You will make me to know wisdom. Truth, sin is also our motives. It's what we think in our inner being. 
I don't know about you, but before I understood righteousness by faith, and, and I'm still growing in it, I'm not claiming that I understand it fully, but once I began to grasp it, I realized what a shallow view of sin I had. And so I thought if I could just work harder with my willpower, I could conquer these few sins that were left, like I mentioned last night. I could get victory, and I could be maybe hoping for salvation. So I worked harder, and some days I actually went without committing a known sin. I felt so good. Not remembering all the times I wanted to sin and just didn't follow through on it because I didn't have the occasion. Someone might catch me. Someone might find it, find out. And so I didn't sin, though I wanted to sin. The more I tried, I found out some days I could hold one sin down, another sin down, and then I didn't have enough hands and feet to hold all those sins down. But if I could hold them down for a day, whoops, what am I going to do with this? My desire my lust, my, my passions, my tendencies, my propensities that I, I couldn't control. And Ellen White describes this, and then she says, there's no victory in those, that kind of experience. Then she describes justification by faith. And that gets to the root of our sinfulness. And so David finally gets all the way there from his acts, to his nature, to his motivations and drives. And then he says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. What's hyssop? Remember what hyssop is, anybody? Yes, the, the plant, the wild plant. If you go to Israel today and you look up at the Western Wall, you see this plant growing out of the western wall? That's hyssop. And hyssop was used for what in the Old Testament times? Yes, some people think when they describe this, they see as a purging agent to go inside. And it may have been used for that. But the way in the Bible describes it, it's not a purging that way. It is the Passover hyssop was dipped into the blood of the Passover lamb, and it was daubed on the doorposts and lintel of the houses. And everyone that was under the blood was safe, was covered. David is basically saying here, as he's thinking of the Passover lamb, that's why he mentions hyssop, and he uses the word purge. It's the word chatat. Do a sin offering for me, Lord. Do what the Passover lamb did for them at Passover time. Cover me with the blood of the lamb is what he's saying. And I will be clean. David saw right here that though he was a great sinner, that he had a great savior. And when he met his judge, he had a judge that it was his best friend that had paid the price for him. He had a judge that was on his side. 
He had a judge that took his place and that imputed for him his righteousness. And so David could say four times elsewhere in the Psalms, Judge me, O Lord. Bring it on. Four times he said that. I first read those four verses and I thought they must be somehow mistakes in the Psalms because how could someone be so excited about the judgment to encourage God to bring on the judgment? But I guess if the judgment is really that good news, you might pray that. Is the judgment good news for you? Anybody prayed that prayer? Did you wake up this morning? First thing, open your eyes. Judge me, Lord, can hardly wait. Come on, bring it on. Why not? I'd like to suggest if we really internalize justification by faith, we will want God to judge us. Because the word in Old Testament form, judge, is usually, most of the time, a positive word. Do you remember the book of Judges? What were the judges supposed to do? deliver the people when they were raised up, when they went into apostasy, and then they, got, they, they came back, and then the, God raised up a judge to deliver them. To The Hebrew, the word judge means to deliver. The word judge means to save. The word God, judge, means to vindicate. And the word judge means to justify. And David was praying these four prayers when Saul was chastening him in the wilderness. Saul had accused him of trying to take over the throne. And Saul was out to get him and was going to kill him. And David is praying, Lord, judge me, deliver me, save me, vindicate me from the false charges of the king. It was good news. He could not wait for God to do that. And that's what I hope we teach our people the judgment's all about. For God's people, the judgment is to save, deliver, vindicate, and justify. Only for the wicked is it to punish. And Jesus. Jesus took the judgment that we deserved, the curses, so that we could have the blessings that he deserved. Anyway, so this psalm is so rich in showing us justification by faith. Purge me with hyssop. Cover me with the blood of the Lamb, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. And what's, what would be the result of this? Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which you've broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. And then he goes on to use the language of Genesis 1. Bara, create in me a, a clean heart. God's in the business of taking our old heart, creating it anew, and giving us a steadfast spirit. That's the message of what God is doing, wants to do for us every day. David prays, don't cast me away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Here's the sanctification process. Lord, I want to have the presence of the Holy Spirit with me. Restore to me, I love this verse, the joy of your salvation. When we're outside of Jesus and have fallen away from him, we lose our joy. But when we get covered by the blood of the Lamb, then he restores the joy of salvation, the assurance of salvation. And notice then, 
conference brothers and evangelists, all of you pastors, evangelists, what only then comes next? Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. You got something to talk about. Here's my experience. Here's what's happened to me. I am covered by the blood of the Lamb. I deserve to die. I deserve to be judged and condemned. And instead, God covered me with his blood. And God imputed to me his righteousness and gave me, filled me with his Holy Spirit, created me in a new heart. I got something to praise him for. This psalm is to me the mainspring of how to do evangelism. If those steps haven't followed first, you might as well give up on evangelism. If your heart's not changed, if you haven't accepted Jesus' righteousness and received the assurance of salvation in Him and have your, your life open for Him to create a new heart in you every day, forget evangelism. You may win a few legalistic people. They're just going to be problems to, in your church. If you can't give them the gospel, the worst thing you can have in your church is people who think they know the gospel and they don't know the gospel and they cause problems. Especially if their pastor doesn't know the gospel. And then he says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. It puts in order. What do we need to do? The whole steps of the plan of salvation. But I want you to notice where it ends. You would think he would end on a note of triumph. I've been restored in my joy of holiness and everything's cool. Everything's joyous. He first has to, real, has to confess specifically that he was a murderer. So he goes to verse 14, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. My tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. But then in verse uh, 17, this is ba the 17 is the end of the psalm, and then 18 and 19 are applying it to the whole community. But David's personal experience ends in verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a crushed heart. In Hebrew, it's and a crushed heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. He ends with a deepening repentance. I believe justification by faith every day. Every time we see a new vision of Jesus, it breaks our heart. And we see a new vision of him, but as we see him, the closer we come to Jesus, the more faulty we appear in our own eyes, which then leads us in deeper repentance Lord, I see more that I, you need to deal with. I need to accept you on a deeper level. And he does. And that leads to greater joy. And the greater joy then leads to us spending more time with him. And then spending more time with him leads us to see more that we need to change. And so the Christian life is a spiral, I believe, of ever-increasing ever-deepening repentance 
and ever-increasing joy. The greater the joy, by contrast, the greater our repentance. So instead of getting to the place where we don't need to repent, no, no more need any imputation of righteousness, we keep on going until God shows us more and more of our ugliness. And I found recently, I know my topic is not perfectionism, but I, wherever I go, people ask me these questions about, how am I doing for time here? Questions about the steps, to, uh, no, uh, Christ's Object Lessons, page 69, when the character of Christ is perfectly reproduced, in, in, then he will come and to claim. And that is held up as the thing that has to happen right. in your life. Perfect reproduction of Christ's character. Did you know that there's another statement that says almost exactly the same thing, and, but it gives the context of the time? Christ's object lesson doesn't give the context of the time. It's just a general statement about the parable. The time is after the close of probation. When we are going through the time of Jacob's trouble and we are in the fiery furnace of God's cleansing us from our earthiness, which we still have after we've been sealed. After we have the close of probation, we will rather choose to die than to sin. And yet we will still see the wretchedness of our sinful character. And God still has a work to do of earthiness removing because he's got to take the dross away from the silver so that it can be purified. And, And then she says, and she uses the exact same language. And finally, when God's character is perfectly reproduced, and I've got all these quotes, I'll put them, I'll put them in the screen on the, on the, before I give it to you so you'll have these references. Because I, I, I've, I finally put these together to realize that God is describing an experience, not that we've got to work ourselves up to before he can seal us, it's after we're sealed. Until the very time when he glorifies us and takes away our sinful nature. I believe that will happen just a few days before, before he comes, when he delivers the everlasting covenant to his people. The everlasting covenant is, I will write my law in your heart, and he will do that completely by removing our sinful nature. And Ellen White makes those par- parallels in Great Controversy and brings us to that conclusion. And only then, after he's removed the sinful nature, just a few hours before he comes, or days, I don't know how long, well, then we'd be able to see him. We've been glorified. And then when we see him, we will be changed, transformed in the twinkling of an eye. Glorification happens shortly before the second advent, according to the description of Genesis, uh, of uh, Revelation of Ellen White. So do you catch my point about the spiral of ever-increasing joy and ever-increasing in- repentance? Thank you for listening to the Oklahoma Adventist Podcast. Throughout the year, we're going to be sharing with you seminars, sermons, and trainings that happen across our conference. So be sure to click subscribe so you're notified whenever new content is released.